0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Killer Psyche ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. A listener note. This episode contains adult content and is not suitable for everyone. Please be advised. When Lori Taylor first contacted me about investigating her mother's unsolved murder, I remember being very skeptical. That's an occupational hazard in law enforcement. FBI profilers have a well-developed sense of skepticism about the tales we are told and those who tell them. We question everything and everyone. It is, after all, part of how we go about solving mysteries. My first impression was that Lori was in way over her head. The death occurred in Mexico, which meant she was dealing with not one government crime-solving agency, but two. Lori was not in any way qualified to do this work. She used to work in sports marketing, and now was a housewife living in Orange County, California. These occupations do not generally help people to develop the skills needed to solve an international criminal case. But then I remembered, well, I used to be a nurse for Pete's sake. But Lori Taylor is persuasive, very persuasive. So I took on her case. Most people, true crime fans at least, Fantasize about catching a thief or trapping a murderer in a web of lies. The crime procedurals on TV make it seem really easy to solve mysteries as if they were a puzzle or a game of wits. But real-life crime solving isn't like that at all. It takes serious patience, impeccable organization, a sharp memory, a relentless desire to find the truth, and an unwillingness to take no for an answer. Most people simply don't have these skills. And even more importantly, most criminal investigators don't have the desire, time or clearance to allow a private citizen into an investigation in any real way. Doing so could slow down the process or put them in danger either actual physical danger or legal danger. Lori Taylor is the only exception to this rule that I have ever encountered. She slowly proved to me and my fellow law enforcement professionals exactly how serious she was. She was determined to solve her mother's murder. Lori's dedication won me over and in the end, I agreed to work with her. As a retired FBI agent, I choose how to spend my time, and I rarely get involved in investigations anymore. But this case, I simply could not walk away from. We were lucky enough to solve the murder, but the end came with a disturbing and painful price. Solving a mystery can be a mixed blessing. The truth may not be what you hope to find or what you imagined it might be. As a Killer Psyche listener, you'll love Audible's new pulse-pounding collection of exclusive thrillers that are guaranteed to keep you on the edge of your seat. With captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances, their titles are brought to life. I recommend The Killer Across the Table by John Douglas, my mentor at the FBI Behavioral Science Unit, and his co-author, Mark Olshacker. It is great. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash psyche or text psyche to 500-500. That's audible.com slash psyche or text psyche to 500-500. Killer Psyche is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? From Wondery and Treefort, I'm Candace DeLong, and this is the second season of Killer Psyche. I've spent five decades studying people's minds through my work as an FBI profiler and psychiatric nurse. I've interviewed lots of murderers, including serial killers. And the question of why they did it is what I get asked time and time again. It is difficult to get a satisfying answer without diving deep into their mindsets. So that's what we're doing. And I will give you my best analysis in this series of what made them do what they did. This episode is Lori Taylor. Lori Taylor is here today to talk with us about who her mom was and how we work together
1: to solve the mystery surrounding her death. My mom's name is Jane Kling. And I say is, despite the fact that my mom is deceased. Because I believe, and I think of her this way, she still lives in my heart. So her name is her name. My mom and dad fell in love at the Safeway grocery store in Oakland, California, and became pregnant with me and moved to Southern California, to Manhattan Beach. We were a blended family. I'm the youngest of five, and my mom had two kids. My dad had two kids, so I had brothers and sisters in the home. The average neighbor who viewed us marching off to school in our matching apparel, we looked like the Von Trapp family at times, (laughs) we looked like that picture, that Brady Bunch picture, but there was a lot of turmoil in the home. Mom and dad had a oil and vinegar, fire and water type of relationship. I knew that there was love and passion somewhere, but it was a tough dynamic. What were their fights about, mostly? My mom rose very quickly through the ranks in the savings and loan industry, and my dad was working in aerospace where they were laying off and there were furloughs. And it seemed that one was getting their self-esteem boosted while the other was getting their self-esteem torn down, which was really the root of much of their arguments and violence and there was hitting and there were police at our home weekly. So we made it look good, but it wasn't always easy, just like every family. What happened with your parents' marriage? So when Kim, my sister and I, who are a year apart, were in middle school, they ended up divorcing. My two elder sisters, Debbie and Sherry, were out of the home living on their own already. My brother went to live with an uncle and Kim and I lived with my mom until we were Freshman in high school. And where did you go? My mom had what was described to Kim and I as a rough patch because she had remarried and quickly divorced. And Kim and I were sent to live with my 21 year old sister, Debbie, at the time. It was actually a great place to land and be with her because Debbie's always very consistent and loving. <laughs> what was your relationship with your mother like? <laughs> it- it's interesting. It, it's like anything else. You know, human beings are complex and our relationship was complex. Performing in the way that my mom thought was acceptable, in the way that my mom thought made her look good, our family look good, we didn't have an issue. Later, when I started to find a voice and I would ask questions that were uncomfortable, I would push back on. You know, false narratives or whatever, I became more of a target of triangulation, a black sheep, if you will, because I think that the fear of confronting my mother, I had somewhat gotten over. So that was frowned upon. You weren't allowed to question my mother about anything.
0: You mentioned triangulation going on in your family. Can you explain what that is?
1: You bet. So, When there are a number of people in a relationship, so for instance, I'll just use my four sisters as an example. If there was a disagreement in the family, if there was someone pushing back on what we, quote, should be doing, mom would individually speak to each daughter and she would make a case for what it was that she wanted. And she would make it clear to them that, she desired that outcome. And generally speaking, she would pit the three sisters against the one sister who might have a different opinion or herself and two sisters against the other to coerce, shame, push the other one into agreeing to whatever it was she wanted them to agree to or dropping you know, things all together. It's a type of manipulation and Mm -hmm. um, super common. Yeah. And one of the things I've learned about triangulation is the person
0: that is at the center of it, the person that starts it, seems to gain power. The only power they may have is putting one person against the other is obviously very, very unhealthy.
1: Part of triangulation is that the person who's at the center of it also alternately idealizes the person that, right, the person that they want to use in their triangulations. When it's your mother, idealization is what you desire, right? You desire for your mother to see you as this prized person, maybe as a confidant. They're telling you something that, you know, they might not tell the other three girls or they might not share with everyone and you're special because I'm sharing with Mm -hmm. you. The target isn't always the same person, so it wasn't always me. Manipulation, I think, for someone, particularly with my mom's diagnosis, manipulation becomes their functioning pattern, their self-protective functioning pattern. You
0: mentioned that your mom had a diagnosis. What was the diagnosis and when
1: did she receive it? So my mom wasn't diagnosed until after her death, when my sisters and I went to grief therapy. Our counselor diagnosed her with borderline personality disorder. And in a nutshell, can you explain that? Yes. This is in my mother's case, I'll say. They appear to be higher up on the narcissistic spectrum and then also very short fused. So they have emotional dysregulation. They have difficulty with relationships. My mom was divorced and married four times. So they have difficulty maintaining relationships because at the core of them, They take everything personally. Everything is about them. Mm -hmm. And it makes it difficult to have a relationship with someone like that. Mom could go from literally being the fun mom that piled all five of us into the station wagon and drive to San Diego uh, across the border to Tijuana for the day. And she'd take us around and we'd buy all the fun little tchotchkes and goodies in Mexico. She was about the adventure, but she could also. Have an absolute fit about someone spilling a glass of milk or accidentally not finishing a homework assignment. Anything could trigger her. And she would go from zero to 100. But that was our normal. That was what we knew. And so we would call my mom quirky. Jane was quirky because she was equal parts fun and equal parts chaos. A lot of good and a lot of bad, but we always lived in extremes. That is a, definitely a characteristic of borderline personality disorder. Yeah, never know who you're dealing with
0: on a regular basis. So let's move forward in time a little bit. You went to college, got your
1: degree, and how soon after that did you get married? I got married when I was 25. And my husband, Rick, and I, at the time, followed his career to Chicago, where my son was born. We moved for a business opportunity to Northern California, where my daughter was born. Was your mom active in you and your children's life? My mom was somewhat active. We had an incident when my children were, Katie was six months old and Clark was two. Rick's job required him to take client groups on incentive travel trips, which was a lovely perk. So, as the wife of the guy in charge, I was responsible for helping to entertain the customers and the customers' wives. So, we would have periods of time where I would have to be away from the kids when they were very, very young. At one point, I had asked my mom to. Come in and sit for the kids. And we went on this trip. We were notified two or three days before we were supposed to come home. We were in contact back and forth that my mom was leaving, that my mom was not going to be there with the kids. And she had called the emergency backup babysitter that I had lined up and told her to come and be with the kids. I was so stunned and so heartbroken because I got the call from the babysitter. I didn't get the call from my mom. So I couldn't ask her what her reasoning was. And that was it for me. You could mess with me, if you will, you could manipulate me, you could shame me, whatever, but you couldn't hurt my children. And that was the starting of a rift between my mom and I. We showed up at holidays. We did the things outwardly that that families do, but I wasn't going to leave my kids with my mom again, ever.
0: So you see each other on holidays, family get-togethers, and time goes by. Years go by. Your mom was
1: continuing to work, but there was something she wanted to do. She, in her later years, decided that she wanted to open a consignment store. Did you invest in the store? The short answer is yes. The small shop that she had started was successful, but that became not enough. And my mom decided she needed a bigger store in the center of town. And I chose not to invest in that venture at the time. How'd that go over? Mm, I was famous for long stretches of No communication. The silent treatment (laughs) was regularly used in our home. So, part of her psychological profile to have a personality disorder was this self protective ego. So, you're either 100% with me and I idealize you and hold you up because you make me look good, or I demonize you and you are the worst possible whatever in the world. So let's just say I wasn't a favored child at that point. So when did the silent treatment end for you and your mom? In this case, I talked to my sisters who essentially said, we're going to support mom in this business. And I fell in line as well. In December of 2005, my sisters and I wanted to do something special for my mom for Christmas, and we took her to a local production of the play Cats. It was one of her favorites. And after we finished at the play, we decided that we would meet in downtown Manhattan Beach and have dinner that evening. And we didn't realize at the time that it was the lighting of the annual Christmas lights on the Manhattan Beach Pier. So when we drove, my daughter and I drove to downtown. We circled for an hour and we couldn't find parking. So we couldn't go to dinner with my sisters and my mom. Katie had a big school project she needed to get home for. So I had to text my family and tell them we're so sorry, we can't join you for dinner, but I need we need to get home for this reason. And we had left the play and quickly rushed off and didn't hug each other, which my family were big huggers and kissers. Little did I know that that last moment in that parking lot that I didn't hug and kiss my mom goodbye because I thought I was going to see her at dinner would be the last time that I would see my mom. If I had known that that night in December was the last night that I was going to see my mom, I would have not only hugged and kissed her in the parking lot, but I would have parked illegally or parked anywhere to have sat and had one last dinner with her did you know that
0: according to fbi property crime data most home break-ins happen in broad daylight as the days get longer this spring protect your home with simply safe its advanced technology protects every room window and door of your home while cameras keep watch for suspicious activity 24 7 all for less than a dollar a day and there's no long-term contract, ever. I love SimpliSafe because it's so straightforward and easy to install. Knowing that my home is protected 24-7 gives me so much peace of mind. It's great that I can always check on my home through the app on my phone. Protect your home today. My listeners get a special 20% off any new SimpliSafe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit SimplySafe.com/slash Psyche. That's simplysafe.com slash Psyche. There's no safe like Simply Safe.
2: Considering a master's in forensic science but juggling family and work, the University of Florida Forensic Science Online Graduate Program is your solution. Tailored for working pros, this entirely online program fits seamlessly into your schedule. Crafted with FBI and law enforcement input, the curriculum equips you with skills to elevate your career. Join over 1,500 graduates who earned their master's since 2000. Specialize in forensic toxicology, DNA and serology, forensic drug chemistry, or create your plan with an MS in forensic science. Advance your career with a master's. No need to rearrange your life. It's online, interactive, and built for professionals like you. No GRE required. Network with forensic pros globally. Ready for the next chapter? Join the world's largest forensic science program and alumni network at forensicscience.ufl.edu slash Wondery. Your journey begins at the University of Florida.
1: Three months after we had taken Mombasa Cats, my phone rang and I picked up and it was my sister Debbie. And she sounded a bit alarmed. I thought she might be calling about Katie's birthday, which is also in March. And she said, Have you heard from mom? And I took a breath because her tone was not casual. And I said, No, I haven't seen mom or talked to mom since December. She said, Well, we're really concerned. She missed a business meeting yesterday, which she never does. And she didn't leave care for. Bear and Charlie, her dogs. And for me, that was an instant red flag. We often joked as siblings that our mother loved her dogs more than she loved her children. And she would not have left them without food and water and someone to care for them while she was gone. The people from work had informed Debbie and Sherry that my mom had also been to the office. And she had left her cell phone there on the desk. And when they were walking to the back room, they discovered that a lamp had been pushed over and crashed to the ground, and the light bulb sat there shattered on the ground. That really scared me because I knew my mom wouldn't walk past a piece of broken glass or a broken light bulb without sweeping it up. It seemed that there was a struggle there, that she was taken from there. She had been forced to leave her cell phone and there was no sign of her. What did you believe had happened at that time? At that time, my mom had in the past in our lives when we were kids, for instance, like when Kim and I stayed together with my sister, Debbie, my mom had disappeared for reasons that never were really explained why she couldn't show up for us, why she wasn't there. And I kept thinking maybe my sisters are overblowing this and mom has gone off and she's at the Ohio Valley Inn having, you know, spa treatments or something. Well, she had done this before when you were younger, just take off. She had, but the more the days went on and having the sheriff's office involved and all made it exponentially more scary. My mom had been happy with her consignment and business. For her not to show up for work meant something. For her to leave her dogs meant something. Something was wrong. And Uh I could feel that and validate that for my sisters because I knew those things were not normal things for my mom.
0: So tell me about that day, the day you got a call that
1: changed your life. Well, it was March 25th, 2006. My mom had been missing for 10 days, and I was trying to make things normal for my kids. We were celebrating Katie's birthday, and after we had blown out the candles and, and opened presents, my dad took us into a room and let us know that Debbie had phoned him and that my mom's body had been found on a beach in Mexico and that we needed to get to San Diego because we needed to go to Mexico the next day to identify her body. Had your mom been missing for a while? My mom had been missing for 10 days at that point. And by then we knew something was desperately wrong. She hadn't communicated with anyone. She hadn't used her credit cards. There was no information about my mom during that time. Did they tell you how she was found? Investigators in the U.S. had put out an all-points bulletin, a missing persons report for my mom in the U.S. On the 14th of March, they had gotten a notice from Department of Homeland Security so they knew that my mom was in Mexico. And they had alerted authorities in Mexico that they needed to be on the lookout for her. Did they offer any information, anything like that? When my mom's body was actually found, she was found half-clothed, appeared to be beaten. Her purse and a blanket and a jacket were found in a bush area. And there were three envelopes that were found seemingly very neatly placed at that site. They were bank statements that had the address where my sister was employed because my mom held her bank accounts at the bank where my sister worked. And my sister Debbie was contacted because of those envelopes. So you got the call and you go down to Mexico. What did you do first? Did you go straight to the coroner? We went straight to the, what they call in Mexico, the Ministerio Público they were not kind to us when we arrived my family was quite threatened and intimidated by the you know the gentleman at the desk we were suspects after all right they had not cleared really? any of my family members okay. as suspects so that's how we were treated so there had to have been a point where an investigation was
0: started did it take long for you and your family to be off the hook
1: as suspects? It did take some time. So there's a lot of bureaucracy across the borders. We were dealing with several law enforcement agencies. So the local one there, we were dealing with the detectives from Ensenada. We had an ongoing missing persons, now homicide investigation with San Diego Sheriff's Office. Did they speculate as to the cause of death? When Debbie and I actually went to the morgue to see our mom's body, identify our mom's body, we had to actually sign her death certificate before we went to go see her. And asphyxia by strangulation was on the death certificate. So between the time your mom's body was found and
0: you contacted me, it was over two years. What went on
1: in between that? It was a long two years, that's for sure. After six months of investigation, I had a sheriff's detective essentially tell me that my mom's case was closed, that it was unsolvable, that the DNA had come back negative for anyone other than my mom. And at that point, I asked him, if it were your mom, what would you do? I was so exasperated that they could close my mom's case after only six months of barely investigating. And he said, I'd call the FBI. And I said, well, can you give me a number at the FBI, a a contact? Nope. Sorry. Clink. And from then on, the kid in me said, I'm going to prove him wrong. I'm going to solve this case. And I did spend a lot of time going through my mom's things. Calling, advocating for my mom, writing to everyone from the you know consulates to the detectives in Mexico, I kept a great relationship because I spoke Spanish and they trusted me at one point. they handed over the border crossing video to me to see if I could have it analyzed in the states, which I did hand it over to three different people, but we kept having doors slammed in our face and ending up nowhere and that's when I saw you on TV. Then I thought, you know, she's a former profiler. I had this fairy tale vision. You could look at those pictures and tell me overnight, you could tell me what happened from what you saw there. That wasn't the truth, really, but eventually it was the truth.
0: Yeah. And little did you know when you saw me on TV, I wanted no part
1: of any private investigation
0: <laughs> again.
1: <laughs> well, I have to say, I had to figure out how to contact you. And I called a very dear friend of mine who was an investigative journalist. And I said, I need to reach out to this woman. I really think that she could help my family. And he said, well, what do you know about her? And I said, well, she's a published author. And he said, well, find her literary agent. So I reached out to your agent. Yes, I recall
0: I had an email telling me that a young woman was looking for me to help out on a case that was considered unsolvable by the sheriff's office. And I just finished doing a private investigation. I never want any part of that again. But I think I said, well, all right, give me your email. You know, she's trying to find me. So the least I can do is respond. Yeah.
1: After having a little over two years of disappointment, Actually tracking down a former FBI profiler and having her literary agent send me her personal email address, I think I might have cartwheeled in my home at the time (laughs) when it was in my inbox. It was a small victory, but it was a victory nonetheless. you didn't break anything.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Lori, you told me that you had what I call crime scene photographs. Not only the crime scene photos, but also the autopsy report. So I recall saying to you, well, I'll take a look at them. And if I think I can help, I will. But if I
1: don't, that's that. I remember you sent me a list of questions. And I remember reading through them and saying, no one's asked me 90% of these questions before. This is why I want to talk to her, because she's asking something different. I don't remember what those questions were, but I bet you do. Yeah, they were, they were very specific about my mom's personality and her way of life. And you would very kindly explain to me when we finally got on the phone with one another that some people are more likely to be murdered than others. People who, you know, dangerous behaviors, impulsive people. And I had never heard anything like that before. High risk. Yes. Yes. We hadn't been told anything like that or asked anything about that. And I tell people who ask, you know, murder investigation is essentially the investigation of somebody's lifetime. And you were cutting to the chase with me on those questions to get an understanding of who my mom was. And I found that really interesting and gratifying and made me hopeful.
0: It is actually called a victimology and learning all about the victim. And it's really crucial for the analyst, crime scene analyst, to have that information to develop an accurate profile, sketch, lifestyle, and personality sketch of a likely offender.
1: You knew nothing about my mom's case, and I felt like you were zeroing in in the first conversation. Part of being a a crime
0: scene analyst and for me it was 20 years with the FBI and then by the time you contacted me 7 years after that you just learn so much more about people and victims who are behaving in ways that may end in them being a victim and things that can pretty much very quickly be ruled out and things that are going to be difficult
1: to rule out one of the things you told me about working on this case that you had just worked on, that sometimes when you work cases, you find things that people don't want to hear. Mm -hmm. You go by the evidence, you find the truth, and they have a preconceived notion about who did it or how it happened or how it unfolded. And then you come in and you present the evidence. They push back and they were not happy because you didn't confirm what they thought happened. You confirmed what did happen. And in our last conversation before You agreed to work with me. I remember one of the last things I said is please know that I've reached the end of the line. I've pushed this investigation as far as, you know, little Lori can push the investigation, and I need a professional. And whatever you say, I will accept as the truth. So I started
0: analyzing the crime scene photos. They certainly were not the best, not by a professional police photographer. So that made things a little bit difficult. But one thing that I do remember is the picture of your mom's body on the beach, and she's half-clad. I do remember thinking, looking at the picture, this isn't right. Something's not right here. It kind of looks like it might be a sexual assault, but not Compared to other crime scenes of of sexual assault I've seen, there was no blood. So actually, I think that's when I decided, okay, now I'm intrigued. You know, this is something that I want to work on. My thought was I had to get better photographs, but all I had was what we had. So I had to somehow or other see if these photographs could be enhanced or improved I did not want to give them to a laboratory. I uh, was not an FBI agent anymore. So the FBI lab was out of the question. And then I thought of New York City medical examiner, Dr. Michael Bodden. And so I contacted him and I said, Michael, I've got something I'd like you to look at. Can I meet you in New York? He said, yes. And that visit with Michael
1: was a real turning point in the investigation. It absolutely was a turning point. You had told me that I needed to be familiar with my own evidence. And you had sent me back to look at those 13 photos and to review them before you made that call to Michael. And I remember I got on Photoshop and I Zoomed. All 13 images, and I found a mark on my mom's arm. And Candace had, you had always asked me, you know, we're looking for signs that your mom was taken against her will. We're looking for ligature marks. And I found something that stopped me in my tracks that really looked like it could be from a rope or something being tied around my wrist. I remember sending it to you, and that's when you decided to call Dr. Baden. So I meet with Michael and
0: explain the problem with the out-of-focus pictures and whatnot, and he was able to blow the pictures up and zero in on a particular thing, like her neck or her wrists were looking for ligatures or her ankles. It was great equipment, but it wasn't enough to make an absolute determination, were there any ligature marks on your mom's hands or ankles, anything to indicate she had been bound? And I remember he said to me, Candace, I have to have the autopsy photographs. And what that means, you know, for our listeners is crime scene photographs are obviously taken at where the crime happens, but autopsy photographs are taken. During the autopsy in the medical examiner's office, and they photograph with the best equipment, every bruise, every contusion, every laceration or scratch, no matter how small, all kinds of things. And Michael said, we just had to have those. And I remember thinking, oh, he has no idea what he's asking. I
1: had my doubts that they even existed. And you were kind enough not to... Let me know that, right? All you said was, keep pushing, Lori, keep pushing. Those autopsy photos are going to be key. Yeah, yeah, and they were. They were, and we were told that my mom's evidence had been misplaced slash lost, but after meeting with the California Department of Justice agents in San Diego Sheriff's Office, an agent took it upon himself to go and search their evidence lockers. And he's the one that ended up finding all of the autopsy photos. They were very helpful. And it wasn't just
0: photographs of your mom's body on the beach. So there was a photograph of your mom's van about 100 feet from where your mom's body was found. And also something very critical to me. And that was a photograph of your mother's pocketbook. The thing that was striking to me was the pocketbook. This is going to sound corny, but it was like it was talking to me. Like, look at me. You know, put on your thinking cap for Pete's sake, Candace. Look at me. And that was very critical to the investigation. Is it was as critical as finding that mark on your mother's inside left wrist.
1: Yes. The other things that came about from having the autopsy photos were that there were additional crime scene photos, seeing the inside of my mom's van and seeing that there was an unusual mark in the back of my mom's van, darkened brownish red that my family had been told was Coca-Cola by investigators. But they hadn't really tested
0: it correct. And it wasn't Coca-Cola. It was not Coca-Cola.
1: It was blood.
0: For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. Featuring a reimagined exterior with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and an interior built with robust materials and integrity, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Its durability has been tested to the extreme while the cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. It was time for me to take another trip to New York with the autopsy photos and the photos inside the van and the area outside the van where it looked like your mom was probably sitting and the purse with the bank statements on top. I remember it was Christmas time because Dr. Bodden could barely find any any time to see me. We put the pictures up and he zeros in on the mark on the inside of the left wrist and asked me something i had already known i asked you was lori's mom right handed or left handed she's right handed and he said to me he magnified it even more he said this wound this is a wound and it looks to be a classic self-inflicted incised wound meaning not a puncture wound but a slicing wound and he was definitive there was no equivocating and then i showed him other things the the pocketbook the bank statements and what happened on the beach began to take form a form that made sense i recall asking him well why isn't there any blood? There was no blood found on the beach or anything like that. And he had an answer for that. And he had an answer for why your mom was half clothed that her top was not on. And I recall asking you, Laurie, could you find out what the temperature was on the beach that night? And we found out I think it was in the the low 50s as I recall. It was cool. It was cool. It was Michael's opinion that this was not a murder and that your mother died by suicide by slicing her wrist, right hand, left wrist. His explanation for why your mom was found only with her sweatpants on and not the top was that after your mom cut her wrist and she is losing a lot of blood and it's also chilly outside, she started walking around, and she probably was suffering from hypothermia. And what happens with hypothermia is sometimes people that are victimized by this, or that fall victim to hypothermia, where they pass out or die, is that their body temperature is much lower than normal, but they feel on the surface of their skin that they are hot.
1: And what is the term for that, Lori? Hypovolemic shock, when you lose a certain volume of blood, your body goes into shock and your body holds onto the blood at its core to keep your organs warm. And then when it gets overly fatigued, it releases all the blood back to your extremities and you get a hot flash of all hot flashes and that makes people feel like their skin's on fire and they take their clothes off. It's called paradoxical undressing. When they undress themselves because they feel like their body's on fire from this, they're actually having hypothermia, but Mm -hmm. the release of blood to their extremities makes them feel like their body's on fire. So they take their clothes off. Right. And
0: so then it was left to determine, okay, what is the significance of your mom's pocketbook being out on the ground, and the stack of bank statements. And I recall going back to my hotel room and knowing that I had to talk to you, and I was pacing, 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 because I believed I was going to be the bearer of very, very bad and shocking news. And calling you was extremely difficult. And I didn't come right out and tell you what Michael had determined. And I remember asking you about your mom's mental history and her mental state. And you shared with me the ups and downs. Of course, you didn't know it was bipolar disorder at the time, but the ups and downs with your mom. And that the three sisters had kicked in money for her to buy this consignment store. And it wasn't doing well. Right.
1: The large mortgage on the new store was coming due. And we had her bank savings, and the money wasn't there to pay that next mortgage payment. Mm-hmm. And so then
0: things started to become clear. What was not clear to me was
1: how to tell you. You're so dear. You were always, always... Even when we were talking about investigative things, you never forgot that we were talking about my mom. And for me, knowing that we were going to have a phone call, knowing that you had met with Dr. Baden, I was the most hopeful that I had been in years. We were finally going to have an answer, some sort of answer. So, as devastating as the new information was, And it was in a way that is hard to explain to people. Well, you know, you got closure. She wasn't viciously murdered. And I said, well, you know, given our family dynamic and my relationship with my mom, it made it even worse. Right. That that Mm -hmm. guilt and shame of not knowing my mom was suffering with mental health issues, not knowing that my mom was having suicidal ideation. Not to diminish what people feel when, you know, their loved ones are murdered, but to explain how strong stigma is in our country. The fact that I, in that moment, felt like it was worse to hear that my mother had died by suicide than to hear that my mother was murdered because of all the shame, right? That why didn't you Mm -hmm. know? Why didn't you do something? It was a horrible moment. And, and you were as lovely and kind to me as you could be. And I'm so grateful for that.
0: Well, thank you. I knew from many years in clinical psychiatry and then years of being an FBI agent that regarding murder versus suicide, when family members believe that their loved one has been murdered, that's horrible enough. But as you said, Lori, to then have to wrap their head around No, it was not that. A victim once told me, a surviving victim of of something similar to you, what you went through, said, Candace, murder is so much more honorable than suicide, which left me speechless. But it gave me some insight as to certainly what you
1: must be going through,
0: what your sisters were about to go through.
1: It's the difference, Candace, between. We were victims when our mother was murdered, and mm-hmm. we were deserving of kindness and support and checking in. And, you know, oh, how you know, this horrible thing happened to you. And there's something very unconsciously attractive about people paying attention and people caring in that way. And then to turn around and say, how do we tell everyone that that didn't happen and we're not deserving of? this in some way until i learned a lot more about it and know that every family who has someone die by suicide is deserving of support and kindness and i definitely definitely have learned how did
0: learning that your mother had taken her own life how did it affect you
1: it was profound and it did change my life in in many ways just like i needed to know and was driven to know what happened to my mom I also needed to know how she had gotten there, what that condition was like. And it's changed me in that I needed to tell this story. I dove into speaking at mental health conferences in suicide prevention. I did write a book. I speak to groups all the time about what it actually means to have somebody who is suicidal, who, you know, losing someone to suicide and how we speak to people and how it how it matters and how stigma is alive and well in our country and it's my hope to be a part of putting an end to the stigma of mental health and suicide. Thank you so much, Lori, for sharing your story. And for those of
0: you that would like to learn more about Lori's experience and her journey on the way to becoming an advocate and expert in the field of suicide, Lori's book is called the accidental truth. When it came out in May of 15, it was a bestseller on Amazon in three categories: self-help, mother-daughter relationships, and true crime. And you can get her book on Amazon or from her website, Laurie
1: L-A-U-R-I-Taylor.com. Thank you, Candace, for having me on and for your friendship. And for all you've done for my family, we really love you and appreciate you.
0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Killer Psyche ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go... Tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. From Wondery and Treefort Media, this is Killer Psyche. I'm your host, Candace DeLong. This episode was written and produced by Lisa Ammerman and Julie Burke. Director of Research is Ann Liu. Mix and sound design by Joshua Morales. Supervising audio producer Maxwell Carney. Head of audio Tom Monahan, with audio assistance from Katie Corpy and Matt Dyson. Editorial support Alexander McCall. Post support from Allison Sandler. Renee Levesque is our production manager. Jada Williams is our production coordinator. Oscar Guido is the producer from Treefort Media. From Amazon Music and Wondery, producer is Stephanie Wachning, and the co-executive producer is Julie Burke. Lastly, our executive producers are Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman for Treefort, and Marshall Louie and Erin O'Flaherty for Wondery. The series is produced by Wondery and Treefort Media.